Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Kate Manning. She is the author of the critically acclaimed novels My Notorious Life and White Girl, and as a television producer, the winner of two Emmy Awards. Her new novel is Gilded Mountain, which is published by our friends at Scribner. Kate, welcome to the program. Hey, it's really great to be here. Thank you, Jason. It's an honor to have you here. And first, Kate, this novel, Gilded Mountain, this wonderful novel, takes place in Colorado, where I'm sitting as we are recording this interview. Do you live in Colorado? And if not, how did you find yourself writing about it for Gilded Mountain? Uh, No, I don't live in Colorado, except in my imagination, where I've been living in Colorado for for quite a few years working on this story. Um, I came to the story because I found an old photograph in my family's attic. Um, It shows uh, about 100 people standing in front of a mountain range in Marble, Colorado in 1915. It's one of those fascinating sepia-tinted panoramas. And I brought it to my dad and I asked him, you know, why do we have this picture and who are these people? And he said, I don't really know. I think one of them is my my grandfather, meaning my great-grandfather. And he, he really didn't know many stories about this guy, except that he said, I think he had something to do with quarrying the marble for the Lincoln Memorial. And oh, I thought wow. that interesting. So um, I hung the picture in my office and didn't didn't get a chance to find out more about it until my dad was getting older. And about eight, 10 years ago, I started researching marble and redstone in the early 1900s before my ancestors time and discovered this most incredible history of um, quarrier, quar- uh, marble quarry, real marble quarry and marble and um, labor troubles, a newspaper war, a fearless female editor, a fabulously wealthy coal baron. And so some of these characters and true stories ended up in a novel. They just seemed ripe for fiction. So that's how I came to it. Outstanding, Kate. And I have um, going to Redstone and Marble often. It's one of my favorite, you know, easy road trips to take people on when they visit uh, here in Colorado. Um, Why change the name to Moonstone for your novel? Well, it's a good question. And especially folks in Colorado have asked that of me because they know the history. They know they can recognize some of the the, uh, historical figures that have been uh, fictionalized in the story of Gilded Mountain. But as a novelist, you really, I'm not an historian. I need the freedom to invent. I I didn't know the the real personalities. I, I didn't have dialogue. I didn't know how people looked. And so I really needed to remove myself from that real history in order to change time and personality and to 
use other figures from history and events that maybe didn't happen in 1907, which is when the book is set, but I didn't mm -hmm. feel comfortable making it too close to actual events. I wanted that freedom to make stuff up. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Kate. In the opening chapter of this novel, our narrator states, quote, I lost the chance to become a delicate sort of lady, one of those poodles in hair parlors and society clubs, end quote. Um, Kate, can you contextualize that quote for us and then tell us why would anyone want to be a poodle in a hair parlor or society club? <laughs> I think that's um, Sylvie uh, is the, the young narrator. Uh, she's looking back at her life uh, from a great distance at these two years when she was a, a young naive in this situation in this town. And so in way, some ways you could call this the education of Sylvie Pelletier. She's the daughter of French Canadian immigrants. Um, but she's had to make certain choices. She's had to confront uh, a choice between maybe good and evil or a hard life and a soft life. And so um, I think sometimes in, in, in our country, one makes fun of other people who are not like them. So, so of course, she looks at society ladies and says, oh, well, they're just fluffy poodles, you know. So that's probably where that um, snide or snarky <laughs> comment comes from. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Kate. Um, the family in this novel, they were in Vermont prior to being in Colorado. Um, there have been a lot of connections that I have noticed recently uh, in my life, at least, and in literature and everywhere between Colorado and Vermont. Uh, do you think people often bounce back and forth between Colorado and Vermont? Why might they do this? Well, in this case, it's because I know that a lot of Quebecois came to Vermont and New England, Maine, to work in quarries and factories. A lot of stone workers in New England were Quebecois. Mm -hmm. And there are some very um, wonderful, rich communities uh, of Quebecois culture in mm -hmm. New England. Um, and so I imagined, uh, and I've spent a lot of time in Vermont, so mm -hmm. I just imagined that this this family, this this worker, would come to Colorado because there's also stone quarries there. Yeah, and even um, in our current era, I imagine just, it's gotta be an easy transition climactically, you know, to go from one place to the other and there's skiing in both. So maybe it's a, a move of comfort. By the way, um, do you speak French or is that part of your background? Your pronunciation is immaculate. Je parle un peu de français, mais pas... Uh... Not very well. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, <laughs> but I did, I did want to <laughs> play with um, the language. I love languages and I love um, the cognates and the, the ways lang other languages have formed, informed, especially American English. And it's really fun to play with that as a writer. So that's probably why I, I adopted a, a Quebecois. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Kate. Um, there is a scene in the first chapter, again, where our, our narrator, Sylvie, her mother is pointing out all of the beauty 
in the mountains surrounding them as they are walking on these perilous cliffs and having to dodge uh, strings of mules and things of that nature. Um, and our narrator makes the observation that my mother pointed out the beauty as if to sell it to us. And my question for you, Kate, is why do people do this sort of thing? Do they think that no one notices the beauty or do you think that they are trying to convince themselves of it? Well, I think the mother is concerned about her three children. They're, they're traveling on a very long, arduous and, and now perilous kind of journey. And so any mother would be trying to um, point out the positive things about this experience and and look children were living going to live in a most beautiful place and so I do think that my my own experience in Colorado in this particular part of Colorado um was absolutely inspiring uh, in awe in awe of it in that classical way and so I came to it almost as a tourist and because it wasn't my countryside, I, I really looked at it with very sharp eyes and noticed things about it. The way you see things when you don't necessarily see things in your own turf on your own home ground, because it's old hat. Oh yeah. I've seen, seen New York or I've seen um, California. I don't need to, I'm not absorbing it with those fresh eyes. And so for me, this this countryside of redstone and marble, I, I nearly drove off the road half the time I was around because I just, you know, I felt as if I was in a, a land of make-believe. And it really, for me, lent itself to the imagination. You know, what what was it like to live here in the olden days? Yeah, absolutely. And that is the hard thing about driving uh, yeah. around here is that you want to look and see what's over the side of the road but then like you don't want to go off the side of the road um absolutely well thank you so much kate listeners we're going to take a moment here to pause for a word from our sponsor and then i will be right back kate manning the book and podcast is sponsored by libro fm audiobooks Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Kate Manning, author of Gilded Mountain, which is published by our friends at Scribner. Kate, one thing I've noticed in this novel is that you write really well about snow. Um, how does one imagine writing about snow in so many varying ways? And how would you teach a writing student to do such a thing? Well, I have taught writing and I I I love teaching. I think 
really when you're looking for metaphors, you you try to you have to go outside of the obvious and you find, uh, I don't know, you find all the different whites there, you know, all you have to do is look at a at a paint, a selection of paint chips to know there are a million kinds of white. <laughs> but um my mother is a painter and I'm and my grandmother was a painter and my uncle's a painter and my daughter. So I'm very informed by visual stimulus. And so color and photographs, like the photograph I mentioned earlier, really influence me and fuel the writing. Um, and I think that for any student, um, avoiding cliches is, is important, you know, white as snow. Uh, <laughs> snow as white as whatever so so there's a lot of ways to describe snow and cold but it's it's you have to challenge yourself to find a fresh image yeah absolutely thank you so much kate um let's now talk about unions what was going on in this specific time that your novel takes place in in this specific industry around organizing labor well um the labor movement and uh, labor organizing in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and on into the 30s, 40s, um, is very rich, very dramatic history, um, and also really inspiring history. Because in the past, there were no protections for workers. There was no limit on the number of hours a person could work. Um, employers obviously tried to pay workers as little as possible. And it was only because of labor unions that we have say the weekend or pensions or overtime or uh, healthcare uh, organized, healthcare protections. So in, the, um, in this era, the early 1900s, uh, workers were striking. The Colorado labor wars are famous for um, activists, labor organizers coming in and, and helping miners, coal miners, hard rock miners organize um, in these large industrial mines and quarries. And I got, I was, I became interested in Mother Jones, for example, who plays a pivotal role in this novel. She's a very fierce and salty character with great language that really appealed to me. Um, she was known as the most dangerous woman in America because she was organizing workers. And she, you know, she called these workers her boys. They called her mother. She called the wealthy industrialists, you know, more savory terms. She called them lapdogs and blood-sucking leeches and vultures. And she <laughs> she actually nicknamed Colorado Governor Glasscock. She, she called him Crystal Peter. You know, she had nicknames for, for all of these people. Um, mm -hmm. So so I wanted to uh, look at this the, these strikes. There was actually a strike up in marble at some point. And I discovered too, uh, that my ancestor, the guy in the picture was a strike breaker. So obviously he, he wasn't the guy with the pickaxe that I had initially, uh, pictured, but the president of the company that did supply the marble to the Lincoln Memorial and other very important monuments. And so that was a legacy I really wanted to explore. And so, um, that's that uh, uh, provides a great 
I don't know, through line and, and sort of a plot point to the book. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Kate. Um, do you think that we in 2022 have lost the lessons of these moments in time? Or do you see a focus on organization and unions coming back to the forefront of contemporary conversation in the COVID era? Absolutely. I think that's um, a very great point. And you, you do, I do notice a lot about how past is present. Everything old is new again in some ways. So yeah, I think we're in danger of losing some of those lessons. I think that uh, there is a really wonderful, exciting resurgence of the labor movement. You see a lot of service workers, healthcare workers, teachers, um, you name it, uh, organizing to ask for a bigger slice of the pie because you see very few people owning a lot of the pie and, and a very large number of people having to share a small slice of of our prosperity. So that's what the labor movement um, can accomplish, you know, by, by collective bargaining, can try to win back some of these um, rights for a, a living wage. And that's really what I think the workers in the 1900s were asking, because here they were living in very difficult conditions, performing very dangerous work for very little money, renting cabins from the company so their salary would go back to the company. They would buy things at the company store so their money went back to the company. They had no no say over how many days they worked. They were often asked to perform dead work, like shoring up a mine tunnel for coal miners or shoveling 14 feet of snow off a rail track. That wasn't paid labor. You're paid by the hour to get out coal or whatever. So I think um, the labor movement offers uh, a great hope for all kinds of things, collect all of us getting together and organizing for, for better life for people. Right. And what, Kate, is the difference in your mind in organizing labor in industries like mining, like in your novel, or logging, uh, like is discussed in the um, excellent novel Deep River by Carl Marlantis. Um, what's the difference between organizing labor in those industries and organizing labor in a retail business such as Starbucks or an independent bookstore like Politics and Prose in Washington, D.C.? I, I, don't, I don't really know the answer to that. I think I'm not... I'm not an historian. I'm not a labor organizer. I, I don't really, I, I guess I would say probably that, you know, an individual bookstore or an individual restaurant or uh, an individual who takes care of elderly people or a babysitter or something, it's hard to organize um, small individualized workers that way. If you have a, a large factory, if you have a large mine with a lot of employees, it might be easier. Although we've seen that it's not so easy at a big place like say Amazon or or mm -hmm. stuff like that. So um, I, I think the grassroots, the workers themselves, the more they know about how unions work, perhaps maybe that mm -hmm. will help. I don't know. 
Yeah, and I want to probe a little bit more on on this question because I guess um where where I'm heading is do you think that there's a difference? Of course, part of the organization of labor is for wages and for time off and things of this nature. But do you think that there was also a danger inherent in mining and logging where people were like actually putting their lives and their bodies at risk um, that may not be there at Starbucks or an independent bookstore? Sure, of course. I think that that was one of the great accomplishments of the labor movement. And, you know, just to get back to the just get back to the the fictionalizing of this. Mm-hmm. I think as I was writing, I realized how little I knew about that and how that fiction can carry the drama and the emotion of that kind of history, which may seem dry, you know, when you're talking about politics or when you're listening to a newscast, but the sweep of a novel and where you're following a, a character who's weighing the danger actually of talking about this kind of thing. And and as I was learning about the risks people took to challenge um, corporate entities and challenge industrialists, I mean, um, Sylvie is named after a very fearless newspaper editor who worked in marble, Sylvia Smith. And Mm. she ran a newspaper which pro-labor, pro-women's suffrage in a time when women didn't have the vote, except in Colorado. (laughs) But, um, you know, she wrote very unflattering things about the company and about workers. And um, they, she suffered very severe consequences for speaking out. And so that's a history that's been squelched. You, if you were to read some of the popular accounts, there was another newspaper in the town which was run by the company and that newspaper's accounts have survived. So if you read about all the old timey fun pumpkin carving contests and sledding in the winter and all the folksy, you know, um, taffy pulls and litters of kittens, and it all sounds really, really swell. And, And you could say, wow, wasn't that a wonderful old fashioned time? And none of the the labor strife or the newspaper war, it's kind of, it's been erased as has so much of our difficult history. And I'm not saying that we need to dwell on it. This novel has a romance in it and it has, you know, a fancy ball and it has a king in it. And but but I so I think that fiction, by mixing some of these elements, can carry that history in a way so that you see all of it. You know, I, I don't think some of us have a a complete history of what our ancestors went through, how tough they were, what they Mm -hmm. put up with and what they fought for and won. So that's, that interests me as good drama, good material. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kate. Finally, let's talk about newspapers. Uh, This is a two-part question. First, um, tell us about the newspaper in Gilded Mountain that you have already mentioned a little bit that our uh, narrator and protagonist Sylvie comes to work for. And then second part, tell us how the sensationalistic headlines in this newspaper, in your novel, compare to those that we might see in the news today in 2022. Huh. I think... Um newspapers were quite partisan for a lot of our history. The idea of 
of um, just the facts, please, may be a newer journalistic uh, standard. And and it's one that I applaud, and it was what I was trained as when I worked in news. You know, the, you report straight as as much as you can, you know, as much as you can see facts on the ground, and you draw in sources that are reliable. But in those days, um, you know, there were labor papers and there were pro-business papers, and in this little town, there were um, there was the company paper, the Booster, that was run by the company that ran, you know, articles about the rosy prospects for investment in Colorado and in mines. And then there was this other paper who, which, which uh, published, you know, is this a stock selling scheme? Is this, um, you know, where's the money for the hospital? The strike is still on, even though you won't read about it in the other paper, that kind of, of thing. So the sensationalism of the headlines you know, maybe journalists are always hungry for that juicy bit. You know, they want the strife. And that's true today as much as it was then. Um, but Sylvie, in, in working for this, you know, apprenticing herself to this newspaper editor, I think she begins to understand that the way you see the world depends on who's telling you the story, right? And we see that Absolutely. today. We sure do. Well, thank you so much, Kate. And thank you for writing this wonderful novel. We have, of course, hosted you here at Explore Booksellers. And uh, your novel continues to sell very well here and well into the um, in, well into the future, I am certain, as it's of great interest to our locals here. Yeah, I'd love to just say a shout out to Explore and to Aspen and the community there and all the booksellers in Colorado and these in, these wonderful communities um, around which, you know, the bookstore is really the hub and independent booksellers are, are um, just a major source of intellectual life in America and supports for readers and writers alike. So thanks to Explore and you. And thank you for writing the books for us to sell, Kate. Listeners, I have been speaking with Kate Manning, author of Gilded Mountain, which is published by our friends at Scribner. Kate, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jason. Once again, I would like to thank Kate Manning for joining us. Copies of Gilded Mountain can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com. Free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN. That's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.